Amen. Hey, this morning we are going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And so if you have a Bible, you can begin to make your way. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We would love for that to be a gift from us to you, to your family. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know how to find the book of 1 Thessalonians. And then as we make our way through there and and other uh, books and verses today, just know that the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Again, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 this morning. Uh, A number of years ago, I I guess 17 or so years ago, when uh, Valerie and I were standing in front of the man who had been her her really lifelong pastor, and all of our friends and all of our families, we were up there, and he was running us through our vows. Now, Valerie's pastor, the guy she grew up with, was from South Africa, so he had this really distinct, really rich accent, even though he lived in Texas uh, at that time 40 or so years. I mean, just this really distinct accent. And so he's up there, and he's looking at both of us, and I think at that point, he had preached a 30-minute sermon with both of us holding hands. And if you watch our video in Fast Forward, we just rock back and forth and rock back and forth as the sun is like beating down on my face and sweat's just pouring down. And he, but he told us going in, he said, I'm going to preach a full sermon. I did not believe he meant 30 minutes. I thought full sermon is in like intro, middle, conclusion. He meant full length sermon. And so he's up there, and so I'm in this state of utter delirium, and he says, repeat after me. And so I begin to repeat after him. I said, I, Matthew, take you, Valerie, to be my wedded wife. And I said, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for better, for worse, for richer in the word he said next. sounded so beautiful when he said it. It sounded so amazing in this South African accent. But when I repeated it, this is what it sounded like. I could not say poor because he said, for richer or poorer. And I said, and I don't know what I said, the rest of it. I'm pretty sure we're married. She kissed me at some point. I took that as the end. Some candles were lit, some violins were played, and we walked out. And I'm still going, (laughs) the amazing thing about this is I was so uh, uh, listening intently to what he said that I wanted to repeat it exactly. And what we find over the course of our lives is that who or what we follow shapes what we are becoming and where we are going, and that's what we see in this passage today. If you look at your life, if you look at your week, and you look at how you're engaging, and how you're living, and how you're uh, relating to those around you, what you'll find over the long haul in your course, who or what you are following, shapes you. It changes you. And it becomes who or what you are going to be, and it shapes who or or where you are going. Read along with me in verses 5 through 10. We did the first half of of verse 5 last week, but let's read it again. Paul had written and said, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you knew what kind of men we proved to be among you 
for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Hey, would you pray with me once more? Father God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement that we're able to take and, and to apply to our lives the pattern of faith we see in your son Jesus and Paul that made such an incredible impact upon these Thessalonians that their faith impacted far beyond their sphere. God, this morning we sang just a few moments ago that if you're not here, we don't want to be. Let that be the cry of our heart. Let that be how we are in this place. We delight in your presence. We want your spirit to flow in this place, to be in our thoughts, to be in our hearts. We want to be invaded by your presence here this morning in this place. God, we want to be changed, altered, made new. We want to be renewed. We want to be broken to sin. We want to be set alive and unto Christ. We want to live lives marked and changed because of an encounter with you this morning in this place. God, would you change us? Would you find our hearts this morning to be malleable in your hands? Would you find our lives to be surrendered before you? God, for the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our lives, would you encounter sin, destroy it, and call us into life this morning? God, this morning as we gather in this place in relative security and relative safety, I'm mindful of our brothers and sisters in faith gathered all across the world this morning, fearful, uncertain, afraid. God, especially this morning, I want to pray for the believers who are living in the Ukraine. God, they live with the expectation of war and invasion. They live with the anticipation of death and suffering. And brothers and sisters in Christ today are able to appoint to a hope that has nothing to do with whether or not Russia invades. God, they're able to point to a hope that has nothing to do with whether or not their gas supply gets turned off. They are able to point to a hope that is enduring. They're able to point to a hope that is steadfast. They're able to point to a hope that is able to be had regardless of the affliction we face in this life. So would you cause them to be brave and rejoice in you? Would you cause them, even in the midst of terrific affliction, to rejoice and to make your name famous amongst those who they have an opportunity to testify to? God, we pray for them, even as we pray for ourselves. Would you bless this time, and would you bless our lives as you minister to us by the power of your Spirit? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul, uh, last week in the first part of verse 5, described the manner in which he came in and engaged and ministered to those there in Thessalonica. He said, listen, our, our, the substance of our teaching wasn't just in word, but it was in power. It was in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And so they got to see a sense of what Paul believed, and they got to see a sense of how Paul was. So it wasn't just hearing from him, but it was seeing the way in which he lived his life, and this which is why he's able to make this statement in the second part of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among your sake. 
They heard what he had to say, and they saw how he had to live. And so they're able to evaluate, is he living in accordance with what he is saying? Is he living in accordance with what he is saying? Now, remember this, that those, the, 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 what Paul did there, that exactly how he engaged there, back in chapter 17 and verse 6, they were accused of being those who were going to turn the world upside down. So they didn't come in with a calm message. They didn't come in with a, listen, you just need to be really nice to the people that live among you. You just need to be an outstanding citizen. And if you do all the things they really well, people will leave you alone. And you can live out your faith in Jesus Christ just like this. No. Paul came in and he said, listen, a life lived under Jesus Christ could be a life lived shortly. A life lived under Jesus Christ could be a life lived in affliction. A life lived under Jesus Christ could be a life you don't get to stay in for very long, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Paul said, you heard what we had to say and you saw how we lived. And the amazing thing happens in this, verse 6, and you became imitators of us in the Lord. What does that mean? It means that the entire church of the Thessalonians were men and women whose hearts longed to turn the world upside down. Do you see that? They weren't just men and women who had traveled through the Awana program. They weren't just men and women who had memorized verses, gone through navigators, been on mission trips. They were men and women who would only ever be satisfied if the complete order of the cosmos was flipped on its head according to what the Romans thought was normal and orderly and fine. They wanted to see Jesus ignite the world. And that's what they set their passion on. That's what they set their hearts on. This is who they were becoming. They were imitators of us and the Lord. Now often when we think of the idea of imitation, it's it's mimicry, and it's annoying. And so the vision in my mind is of me being a little brother when my brother would say something, and I would have my best, most snotty, annoying voice in the world, right? And say, and he would just growl at me. And then I would run behind my mother's apron for safety and security. And that's what I think of when I think of mimicry. And now I get to see it play out in yet another generation with my three boys. Behind the apron strings they go. But when Paul writes of mimicry, what we read in here is careful study and diligence applying all the various things they see in him. So when they're looking at Paul's life, they're carefully saying, okay, so this is how this man is at dinner. This is how this man is at breakfast. This is how this man is in the morning. This is how this man is in the the late afternoon. This is how this man is in the evening. This is how this man is when he's sick. This is how this man is when he suffers. I understand that, and I see in him the imprint of Jesus. So everything he did, everything they said, they're measuring it and saying, do I see, am I able to evaluate the full imprint in the measure of Jesus? And this is why Paul is able to say it is true of him, it's true of Silvanus, it's true of Timothy. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. He joins them. What passion he lived with. What promise he gave them that they could look at his life and look at the Lord's and see them as one imprint, one mark. They were becoming what they followed. Look at what he says next. He says, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we look at these terms, I think there's a level at which we look and say, Okay, 
I don't really understand this. The joy of the Holy Spirit, I got that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Paul. Galatians 5, you know, 22. I love it. I think it's the greatest thing in the world. Give me some more joy. I want it. But what he does there is he pairs affliction and joy. Now, how do we see these things working in concert? Look at Matthew 5. Flip over to Matthew 5 just really quickly. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. He says, blessed are you. You're in a state of the way God has made you to be. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Everybody say falsely. Note the key word there. They're uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When you suffer for Jesus, you are blessed. And what is his command? What is his instruction in verse 12? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the order of the kingdom of heaven is such that Jesus says, when we suffer in affliction, our response should be one of rejoicing. Now, if you look at your life and you say, oh, Pastor, I don't encounter very much affliction. I don't encounter very much opposition. What this is likely uh, an example of, what this likely points to, is that you are curating your experience. You're curating your experience. It is not natural in our human condition to want to subject ourselves to torment and to pain, right? So what do we do? We curate our experience. We look for people who instead of, instead of the opportunity of encountering opposition in their relationship, we look for people who echo back to us what we say to them. So we find people who align with us politically. We find people who relate to us and identify with us ethnically. We find people who relate to us socioeconomically. We find people who generally, their worldview is the same or similar to ours because we don't want to experience opposition. And in our avoidance of opposition, we give ourselves no experience for affliction. In our quest for calm, for peace, for joy, for ease, we take away the vehicle of affliction that the Lord delights to use to bring about true joy in our life. This is going to be the experience for most of us living in this place today. It is going to take you moving outside your normal experiences of life, your normal routine, your normal workplace, your normal place of education, your normal school, your normal friend group. If you want to experience the affliction that Paul praises here, if you want to live the kind of life that Jesus talks about in Matthew, verse, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, you are going to have to change something about the people you're relating to and where you're going. Let me just be candid. That's super unpleasant. There's no part of that that makes me wake up in the morning saying, all right, who do I want to go to lunch with today? Oh, here's the affliction. Look at that. I put it as his nickname. Siri, call affliction. Oops. Hey, listen, if your phone's ringing. <laughs> Went to voicemail. That's going to be awkward. 
<clears throat> hey, can you silence my phone? Just kidding. But this is what it's going to take for us. But look at what it's paired with. It is with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This joy has nothing to do with how well things are going in our lives. This joy has nothing to do with money in your bank account. This joy has nothing to do with whether you're, with, whether you're healthy or whether you're sick. This joy has nothing to do with whether you live or die. This joy has everything to do with reflecting and taking the image of Jesus upon your life. This joy has everything to do with following him passionately and following no one else. Amen? Do you want this joy? This is the joy he lays before us, the joy that was set before Jesus. This is why he endured the cross, so that we might be joyous even in the midst of affliction. So instead of avoiding it, let us give ourselves to the pursuit of it. Let us go to the places of discomfort. Let us step into the relationships of pain and difficulty. Let us experience the affliction that leads to joy. And let us live lives fully dependent upon God's Holy Spirit. Paul says, this is what you did. And in so doing, you, Thessalonian church, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And when Paul writes in Macedonia and Achaia, he's talking uh, Philippi, he's talking Berea, he's talking to the Thessalonians here. And when he says Achaia, he's talking Athens and Corinth. So just think a, a region or an area hundreds of miles in its, in its expanse. This is what not a group of people in the Thessalonian church had become. And I think that's something that we could say, okay, well, we have people that we would say these people should be an example. We have people in this church that if you were to say, who's an example to you? Who could you follow? Who do you see Jesus so evident, so true, so pure in their life, that if that's all you had, that that would be enough to make a difference in the way you live your life? Who do you have? You can think of one or two. You can think of three or four. Paul says it's true of their whole church. Is it true of us as a church? I don't think so. And what this is an indication of, not that we're failing, but we, yet we still have more work to do. So Paul says, in essence, he says, listen, you guys as a group of people, your impact is so great that it stretches all the way over to Texarkana, that it shoots all the way over to Fort Worth. It skips over Dallas because nobody can permeate that. It goes all the way over to Fort Worth. It goes all the way down to Corsicana, and it shoots all the way up to Sherman. It's this massive swath of area. And everywhere we go in this area, what people say about you is that you are an example to them. Your life is an example to them. Your affliction is an example to them. How they see the Holy Spirit being in you, this place where you are accused of turning the whole world upside down, this is what they want for themselves as well. You're an example, an imprint. In my office, if you ever walk in there, you'll see a number of books, many of which I've read. And in the front of those books, you'll see that there is a seal. When I graduated this last time, and the last time, my wife bought me uh, an embosser. And so what that does is you put it into the, the, one of the first couple of pages and you apply pressure. And when you pull it back, it says, this is from the library of Matthew A. Beasley. So one of the things I recognize after being a pastor is that a number of you are thieves. <laughs> I would say literate thieves, but when I ask you if you've read the books, you say, no, it's there somewhere. And so you're just in the category of thief. And so what that embossing is meant to do is to leave an imprint in a seal that says, this is not your book, this is my book. And some of you 
apparently can't read that or don't have the facility to engage in the softness of your fingers to tell this is my book and not your book. But nevertheless, that seal remains. And that seal communicates something. And it says something about what that book is and to to who owns that book. What the seal upon their lives says is that they are owned by Christ. And so deep are the grooves of imprint in their lives that everyone that encounters them, that meets them, that hears about them, is shaken. They're terrifically impacted. Because the imprint has not left something that's difficult to read. The imprint has left that which can't be missed. Paul goes on, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone everywhere so that we need not say anything. They're caught up in this twin idea. One is engaging and sharing the gospel. He says, listen, it's not only that your faith has gone forth, that it sounded forth, but everywhere we go, we walk into the, into the room, we're like, have you met? And they interrupt us, and they say, the Thessalonians, those guys are awesome. They're the best of the best. That's who we're trying to look like. That's who we're trying to be. Now listen, if you look at the church growth movement, moving out of the 90s into the early 2000s, we were terrible at this. Now, don't get me wrong. We were really good at copying. We were really good at imitating. We were really good at following examples. But essentially, what we would do as church leaders, as a church movement, as a convention of churches, what we would do is that we would evaluate every church really on three different areas. What's their attendance? What are their decisions? And how much money are they bringing in? What's their attendance? How many decisions are they having? And how much money are they bringing in? And when we would find a church that had a number of different decisions that was just going nuts with money, I mean, they're lending money to the bank at this point, and their attendance was just skyrocketing, we would say, they must be doing something right, we want that. And so the church I attended for a long time in Lafayette, Louisiana, what they did was they looked out to the West Coast, and they saw in Rick Warren and the movement of God out there something that they wanted for themselves. So they picked up, and they flew out there, and when they landed, they said, this is amazing. They've got all the people. They've got all the money. They've got all the decisions. Let's take this back to Lafayette, Louisiana, add a couple uh, AEs and and some laissez-le-bon-ton roulette on top of it, and let's call it a movement of God. And this is what we do. We find things that work in different locations, and we bring them in because what we are concerned about as a convention and a movement of churches is how many people are there, how much money is coming in, and how many decisions are being made. Look right here in this text. Your faith has sounded forth from Macedonia and Achaia. Do you know why they became an example? They were afflicted and they were joyous. doesn't say a single thing about numbers. We don't know how many professions of faith were coming in. We don't know how much money they were bringing in. And we don't know how many people attended on a weekly basis. One of their early church gatherings got broken up by some Jews and men among the rabble. They got drugged before the leaders and the authorities. They were accused of turning the world upside down. They were accused of sedition. They were accused of treason. And do you know what happened in the middle of that? They rejoiced. When they encountered affliction, they turned to joy. The reason this church becomes an example 
has nothing to do in the measuring of success, how we determine success today. The reason this church became an example is because people could not help but see the rule and reign of the Holy Spirit in their life. It says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. Imagine then if we're here gathered in this place worshiping the Lord and someone were to kick open those doors in the back of the room and someone were to kick open the doors on the Alliance side and, and the wave of worship were to roll, down this, roll out of this place and down Wesley Street and past the Loop and past Lee Street and on up into Wolf City. That's the picture he gives us, this uninterrupted concert of praise. This is what he's calling us to be. That we would so give ourselves to a pursuit of the Lord that you could not stop the wave of our testimony from going forward forever and ever and ever, even in penetrating and crossing over the muddy, terrible Red River into the Netherlands of Oklahoma. This is where he calls us. This is what he says we should be. He says, your faith has gone everywhere. We need not say anything. Every time we talk about you, people say, they treated you, Paul. They treated you, Sylvanus and Timothy. Timothy, so incredibly well. They know what it was like for us to be there. And then they tell us your testimony. Look at 9 and 10. He says they tell us how you turned to God from idols. You remember when Joel was up here and he says, listen, what we saw there was something amazing. It's a picture of, of someone turning from death to life. Coming to a knowledge of Jesus is not a philosophical adaptation. It's not bringing in and saying something, listen, my life's pretty good, but this Jesus would make it better. My life's pretty good, pretty grand, pretty amazing, but if I could somehow bring in the idea of Jesus in the community that comes along with it, I think things would be better. The word he uses here from turn is so incredibly marked, so incredibly powerful, that what he describes, what he engages in, is nothing short of a complete and utter whole life reorientation. It is as if, in fact, that my heart is dead, that it is not there, that I'm stuck in the dark, that I'm lost and wandering, and he radically reorients everything about me and everything about my life. My dead heart becomes alive. My darkness becomes life. My lostness means that I am found in him. This is what he says they did. You turned from following idols. You followed your job. You followed your passions. You followed your stomach. You followed your desires. You followed whatever it is that you look at and say, this is what I'm willing to sacrifice for. It's money. It's power. It's popularity. I don't know what it is for you, but are you willing to let that die to follow Jesus? And if you're not, you're not ready to follow Jesus. Listen, the world's always going to call you back to the idols that kept you. If you think coming to Jesus means those idols are dead and they're gone and they never have sway over you, you are leading yourself down a path of ruin. The idols you once followed want to be followed. They are going to get creative. They're going to invest in your family. They're going to invest in your family's activities. And they're going to say, I'm worth it. You don't want to suffer. You don't want to be afflicted. You don't want your kids to do without. You don't want them to miss out on activities. You don't want them to miss out on a college scholarship. So let's let them play select ball. And let's just miss every Sunday for the rest of your life. Because maybe, just maybe, they'll go to college on a scholarship. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, they've got that arm. You've only got one life to live. You've only got one chance to be their parent. Are they following Jesus as you follow Jesus? 
Or are they following Jesus as Denise follows Jesus? Are they following Jesus as Ryan follows Jesus? Are they following Jesus as Joel follows Jesus? Your job as a parent in this place, as a guardian in this place, is to live such a vibrant and beautiful, life-altering pursuit of Jesus that when your kids see it, they say, that's what I want. I see it in my mom. I see it in my dad. I see it in their marriage. I see it in how they suffer. I see it in how they come to me and they say, I'm sorry I spoke to you that way. I shouldn't have done that. Would you forgive me? What are you willing to do? Who are you going to follow? Who are your kids going to follow? Y'all, who are the people in our community going to follow? If you're in school and, and, and you're in the seventh grade, eighth grade, you're a high school senior, you're in elementary school, you're in college, when your peer group sees you respond to different things, what does that say about who you're following? When our humor and our engagement and our style of relating and our style of being is evaluated, could it be said of us that we became those that were worthy of emulation? Could the Thessalonians have looked at us and looked at our church and said, that's who we want to be? And would following us have led them into affliction? Or would following us have led them into complacency? These Thessalonians turned from idols and they did something in particular. It says you turn from idols to the living and true God and this is what you do in the meantime. You serve him and you wait for him. You serve him and you wait for him. Service takes all of us in whatever state of life we're in and calls us to an active engagement of doing something. Something. God has gifted you for service in his kingdom. What we read over and over again in Paul's letters is that he has laid aside good works for us to walk in. There is something for you to do. There is something for you to be. How are you serving? Look at where they find their hope and their joy. He says, and you wait for his son from heaven. This is where our hope is found. This is where the possibility for finding ourselves rejoicing unendlessly can be discovered. It's in waiting for his son. What many of us need is a radical reorientation of our hearts in this place that does not look for our retirement. It does not look for the next break, which would be spring break. It doesn't look for the summer vacation What we look for, what we wait for, isn't a Republican to to be back in office. It's not appointing somebody conservative to the Supreme Court. It's not that somehow we're able to usher in enough allies to hold the Russians from coming into the Ukraine. What we are hoping for, what we are waiting for, is that the heavens would be peeled back and that Christ would descend. That's the hope of every heart. Y'all, that's the only place that we're going to find our hope not disappointing. Every other hope's going to fail. Jesus never will. We serve him. We wait for him. He is the deliverer. He delivered you from sin and death by calling you to himself. He delivered you by taking upon himself your penalty and the punishment for your sin upon the cross. And what we read here is that God raised him from the dead. This Jesus is the delivering one, and he delivers us in the past, and he will deliver us from the wrath to come in the future.
Jesus, when he began to minister early in his early in his earthly ministry, would come up to those who would be his disciples, and he had a really simple message for them. It was, follow me. And they dropped everything. They turned away from families. They turned away from professions. They turned away from ease. They turned away from comfort, and they followed him. And his command is the same today. If you're a follower and believer in Jesus Christ, the command you wake up to every morning and the voice you should hear as you lay down at night is follow me. Who or what are you following? Who or what are you following? And who is it making you to be? And where is it taking you? Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we come into this place recognizing that our idols want us to resemble them. My prayer is that your spirit would so burden our hearts that we want to look like Jesus. We want to be submitted to him. That we would look like him. That we wouldn't settle for anything else. God, we pray for those who are in this place who do not know your son Jesus. They're doing their best to look like somebody good, to look like somebody powerful, to look like somebody popular. They're doing their best to be invisible. You tell us in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit comes into the world to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So God, I pray this morning that you would convict the lost of sin. The Bible tells us that the only way to escape the wrath that it is to come is through the promise of Jesus. Forgiveness in him, belief in his name. So God, I pray that the lost in here and in this hearing, those who do not know Jesus, would follow the example of the Thessalonians, that they would turn to Jesus. God, would you do a work in their hearts? God, would you do a work in the hearts of those who are following Jesus and help us to follow him faithfully? Help us to constantly reorient our hearts and lives to him. Him we serve. Him we wait for. Our rescuer, our deliverer. We submit these things to you in his name. Amen.